All right, good morning, Salt City. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Drew. And before we jump into the sermon this morning, we actually have a unique announcement, a first-time announcement. And that is that this is one of the last two weeks that Salt City Church will be called Salt City Church because we are changing our name to Redemption Church. And um, you might be wondering, why would you do something like that at a time like this? And the, qu- the question's a great one, and there's really three answers to that question. The first answer is a communication question. So the college pastors in our church came to me and said, hey, both of our college ministries are named Salt Company, and our church is called Salt City, and everyone calls our church Salt, and everyone calls our college ministry Salt. There's just too much salt. So that's reason number one, an internal communication um, concern. The second one is really a missional concern, and that is every once in a while, we would get in conversation with somebody, and they would say, Salt City, like Salt Lake City, are you Mormon? And we want to make sure that everyone knows that we are not Mormon. So that's number two. And the third one is a timing question. And we basically realized that if we were going to change the name of our church, now was the time to change the name of our church because we own a building, we're about to start construction on it, and there are going to be a lot of things that have the name of our church on them. So the cost was going to be very high if we didn't change the name now. So when you come back after the new year, If you're looking for signs that say Salt City Church, you won't be able to find them because the signs are all going to say redemption. We've got some logos that are going up on the screen, so that's cool. Our symbol's going to be a dove, which is awesome, and Isaac's been running point on that, and if he thinks it's cool, I think it's cool because he's cooler than I am, so that's just a fact. All right, Um, we are jumping into uh, this text this morning, and we're looking at the incarnation of Jesus. And it's an amazing reality that the God of the universe became a human being. And I think one of the things that the incarnation does for us is it gives us another angle on who Jesus is. And I think one of the things that I've realized as I get to know people that makes someone become more amazing to me is when I learn something new about them that was previously hidden to me. So I think of a friend that I played basketball with for a while named Sam. And Sam was a fellow pastor, and I always perceived Sam as a super gentle, kind, generous human being. And one day we were playing basketball at the YMCA, and a couple guys got in a brawl, not Sam or I, These two guys were fighting, and they were about to to go to blows. And all of a sudden, Sam just runs and gets between these two rather large men and separates them and says, what are you guys doing? This is not a place to fight. And all of a sudden, by the way, he did that just because, you know, I was on my way to do it too, but I just (laughs) couldn't make it in time. But he... He gets in there like, guys, what are you doing? And I'm standing on on the sidelines like, wow, I didn't know that in addition to being gentle and kind, Sam was also tough. And my admiration for him grew because of that. And I think that as we look at this text, our admiration for Jesus is going to grow as we put the spotlight on a couple of his 
characteristics. So the big idea this morning is that the glory of Jesus is seen in his manifold perfection. So it's actually as we see the different characteristics of Jesus that we get a greater glimpse of his glory and the worship grows in our heart. So the first aspect of the glory of Jesus that we're going to see is the kingship of Jesus. Look with me again at Luke chapter 2. We're just looking at verses 1 through 7 to start. It says, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And David also went up from Galilee, or Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the end. So the first thing that we notice in the text is the power and the authority of Caesar Augustus. So Caesar says to the entire world that they are to be registered. And everyone does what he says. And so we stand in awe of world leaders who have the type of power that they can tell everyone in the world what to do, and they immediately do it. And it seems like the insignificant detail in the story is that this poor lower class couple is going to be registered in a place called Bethlehem. They're from a small hick town called Nazareth. They go back to Bethlehem to be registered because Joseph is from the house and lineage of David. David was a famous Old Testament king. And apparently, during this registration process, you were supposed to go back to the town of your family of origin. But in the sovereignty of Caesar, we see a greater sovereignty at work. There's actually a greater king than Caesar in the text. And we learn throughout the Gospel of Luke that the baby who's to be born in the manger is the real king of this story. But here is Mary and Joseph going to Bethlehem. And wouldn't you know that Jesus would happen to be born while they were there? And what Luke is alerting us to in the reality that Jesus was born in Bethlehem is that an ancient prophecy was being fulfilled in his coming. And this prophecy is spelled out many places in the Old Testament. One of the most clear ones is in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 16 through 17. This is Nathan, a prophet, speaking to David, the king. He says, And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words, in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. So here's the problem. David had died and was buried, and the kingship in Israel 
had ceased. And so people were wondering if God was ever going to fulfill his promise. Was God a liar? Did God make a mistake? Did not God not know what was coming? And what Luke is alerting us to is Jesus' birth in the city of David is indicating that he is the king who cannot stay dead. He is the king who will sit on the throne forever. And so what we really see in this passage is that although Caesar seems to be in control, he seems to be ruling, he seems to be sovereign, he seems to be inconveniencing Mary and Joseph and making them do something that they didn't want to do. After all, there's no room in the inn and they have to stay in a stable and their baby has to be born in a manger. In all of those details, God is sovereign in control over even the decisions of Caesar. We are meant to look at this political leader who seems to have all this power and not look directly at him, but look above him and see that God is the author of history. I was thinking about this week, occasionally, when I go pick up my son Gabe from the bus, I let him drive the car home from the bus stop. It's in our neighborhood, don't worry, he's seven, he's qualified. And so I'll sit Gabe on my lap in the 2010 Nissan Altima that I drive, and and I'll let him put his hands on the steering wheel. And then what I do is I put my hands over his hands. And so I let him drive and he feels like it's a thrill, right? Because he gets to turn and he tries to like turn into people's yards and different things like that. But because I'm stronger than him and bigger than him, he can't do it. Now I let him think that he's in control enough that he enjoys it, but not so much that he can ruin our lives. (laughs) This is how God interacts with history. He lets people make decisions that they feel like are free, but not so much that they begin to control the flow of history. His name is the King of Kings. He is the ultimate sovereign. And so that Jesus who was in that manger was simultaneously a baby and upholding the universe by the word of his power. When Jesus became human, he did not give up his divinity. He added humanity to his divinity and in a great mystery was both God and a baby. So we worship Jesus as the king of kings. The second thing we see in this text is not just the kingship of Jesus, this thing that's often emphasized at Christmas time. We see the humanity of Jesus. Starting with verse 8, the text says, And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. 
You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. So we get another surprising twist in the story. Shepherds at the time were blue-collar workers. And like many blue-collar workers today, they were working inconvenient hours. So they were out at night. They weren't in a church service. They weren't seeking after God. They were probably sitting around a bonfire telling crude jokes. And all of the sudden, an angel shows up to them. The glory of God shows around them. And God announces to them the good news and the great joy that will be for all the people. God didn't come to a king in a palace. He didn't come to somebody who was influential or to somebody who was rich. He came to shepherds, specifically to emphasize to us that this good news would be for all people. I just want to pause for a moment and just reach out to those of you who feel excluded. Maybe it's because of your race. Maybe it's because of your sex. Maybe it's because of your economic position, or maybe it's because of something wrong that you've done. And you feel like, yeah, I know the message of Christmas, and I actually believe that it's good news, but I don't believe it's for me. Those two words, all people, were written for you. And God showed up to those shepherds for you. Because if they're not excluded, you're not excluded. And here's how God chooses to communicate to the shepherds what he is going to do. He says that the message is not going to be focused on a list of rules or religious observances, but instead, the message that he has is focused on a savior. The reason that the message of the good news is for all people is because the message that we have is about a savior who saves people, not a list of rules that you have to obey to climb your way to God. It has nothing to do with what you do to get close to God. It has to do with what he has done that gains you access to him. So he's saying the king that was just described from the city of David, whose throne will be established forever, is not just king, he is also savior. And here is the sign that this is the savior of the world. You think this is the climax. Okay, an angel has showed up, the glory of God is shown around. What's the sign gonna be? He says, here's the sign. There is a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And then, 
soon as he's finished saying that, multitudes of the heavenly hosts are praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace among those whom he is pleased. Isn't that interesting? I find that so interesting. It's like, okay, guys, here's the sign, a baby lying in a manger, and then multitudes of the heavenly hosts show up and start singing. You would have thought he would say, the sign is the multitudes were going to show up and sing, not the baby in the manger. What's significant about the baby in the manger? It's that the baby is God. Think about that. God became human and lay in a manger. So human that he would be tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. He became killable. He became small. To show us that he was willing to go anywhere to rescue us. Okay, I don't even know how to illustrate this. So I was processing this with Jordan. We were in Columbus on a church planner assessment this week, and we were standing in the lobby of this church that we were at, and I was like, how do you illustrate this? And Jordan made this statement to me like, I don't know. I feel like you've just got to say, it's amazing, or something. And I was like processing this with him, and I'm like, I feel like the only thing that works is just something completely absurd, because this is absurd. And so this is the best I could do. Imagine that you're sitting at a counter with one of your friends, and you start to think about almonds, almonds and yeah like the little nut and you're just like I can't believe that they're turning all of the almonds into almond butter and so you're like hey somebody likes it at least one person all right so so you're like I am going to become an almond to save the almonds from becoming almond butter and and so I was running this past Jordan and he thought it was good but we we're processing this, and even that illustration, as silly and stupid it is, doesn't go far enough. Because almonds and people are both in the same category. We're both created things. This is the uncreated creator of the universe becoming created, becoming human. And so all of the excuses that we have for why we're too bad or too lost or too far gone melt away as we stare at the absurdity of the incarnation. It's supposed to sound crazy because God is crazy about you. He wants to know you and have relationship with you. He became really and truly And so here's how easy it is to come into relationship with God. It's so simple. It is as easy as kneeling next to a crib and saying hi to a baby. That's how accessible God has become. 
Okay, so what ought our response be to the manifold perfections of Jesus, that he is both king and human? It is that we see the treasure of Jesus. Look with me at verses 15 through 21. It says, When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen, as it had been told them. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. So you imagine, like, the heavenly hosts are singing, glorifying, praising God, and all of a sudden the shepherds are left, and the only light is just that little fire, and they are trembling with excited fear. They're like, okay, what do we do? Well, we go to Bethlehem. If, the, if that's the sign, if this wasn't even the sign, if that's the sign, we've got to go to Bethlehem. And so you can imagine these guys like running, like tears of joy streaming down their face. Like we get to see the savior of the world. And, and they're running toward Bethlehem, shouting and praising God, And they come in, and the scene is completely ordinary. They're so excited, hearts beating. There's a mom holding a baby. And they come in, and they begin to exchange stories with Mary and Joseph. They're like, you will not believe what just happened. We were up on that hill, and God told us, that this baby would be the savior of the world. And you imagine Mary saying back to them, you've got to be kidding me. Do you know that a little over nine months ago, God came to me through an angel and told me that this child would be the savior of the world. And it says all of them wondered, but Mary treasured these things, pondering them in her heart. Okay, so I think Luke's alerting us that there is something better than merely standing in awe that God became a human. And this word, treasured, it means that she preserved a thing from perishing or being lost. She took mental notes. And she allowed the truth of what was being told her and what she remembered to ruminate in her heart. She gave Jesus as Savior King primary place in her soul. She didn't merely stand in awe. She meditated on these truths day and night. So when you find a treasure, it's good to say, wow, it's better to make plans 
for how to preserve that treasure. Now, Jesus, later on in his ministry, in Matthew 13, 44, would say this. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. See, it's not enough to just have joy that you found a treasure. It's what do you do with that treasure after you found it? Think of the intentionality that it would take if you found treasure in a field to go through all of the paperwork and all of the conversations to buy that field. Months and months and months of work to preserve the treasure so that it would be truly yours. I think God is asking us to be like Mary this Christmas. And not to merely hear this message of the good news of Jesus, that he became human to save us, but to ponder it in our hearts in such a way that it changes our lives. That we would reorient our lives so that the treasure of our very hearts would not be our money, would not even be our family, the things that we're normally treasuring and celebrating and looking to fill us during the Christmas season, but that the treasure of our heart would be Jesus. And that the evidence of that, that yes, it would be great to have good food and it would be great to get awesome presents and it would be great to spend amazing time with family. But even when our expectations are disappointed that our hearts would not sink because our treasure is not lost. So how do we do that? I got a couple practical things for you. Because I think that if we don't have a plan going into the Christmas season, we naturally drift toward the cultural assumptions that we already have about Christmas. One practical thing is to get up early before the hustle and bustle of your family. Maybe it's just for 15 minutes. Open back up to the Gospel of Luke. Read the first several chapters. Get a notebook and a pen out. Sit in silence and say to God, speak to me about Jesus. Show me the treasure that he is. And then I think from that place, the second application I would have for you is enjoy the good gifts of Christmas as gifts from God. We should have a double enjoyment of everything that everyone else enjoys. We should love the presents that we get. We should love the turkey, the eggnog, whatever it is that you love about Christmas, because we believe that every good and perfect gift comes from God, that he loves us. So he didn't stop at giving us the treasure of Jesus. He also decided in his grace and sovereignty to fill our lives with good things. So we of all people should be most thankful 
But I think that the second one is dependent on the first one. We need to get our hearts right with God. Now, there's a reason that Christians down to our day don't wear mangers around their necks. We wear crosses. Why? Because Jesus becoming human is not the climax of the story. The climax of the story is the cross. Jesus became human so that he could become killable. His mission was not to stop at becoming a baby, but to go to the cross. And the reason for that is because the primary need that we have is not for company from God. We don't just need someone to come and care for us. We needed someone to come and die for us. And so Jesus went from being a baby to a boy to a man. He went public with his ministry at 30. He spent three years with his disciples. And the climax, to everyone's dismay, was that he went to the cross. And he did that as an exchange. Our sin deserves death and punishment. And he died on the cross in our place But death could not hold him. Because although he is the humble, killable human, he is also king of kings and lord of lords. And so the good news that I have for us is that although he died, he is not dead. And so you can know him this Christmas. He wants to know you, to have relationship with you. This is the good news and the great joy that is for all people. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for this reminder. Would we not breeze through these next several weeks and try to find our greatest treasure in the things of this world? But would we treasure these things and ponder them in our hearts in such a way that we have a healthy detachment from the world because all of the needs of our soul are met in you, Jesus. And from that place, would we be able to live lives of joy and sacrificial service to those around us? I pray this all in Jesus' name.